This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. I got a couple of cool things to talk about and a bunch of really great Q&As that I'll try not to talk too much for them, Um, but let's just jump right into the news. First up, The Real Phoenix just released its design files for the 3D printed Game Gear cartridge, which I am really excited about. Um, The files are up on Thingverse, so uh, I've actually never really had anything 3D printed online. Um, Renee has actually printed a few things for me from DB Electronics, but I was wondering you guys' opinions on the best way to get some of these made. Um, I figure if I'm making one, I might as well make two just to have. But uh, is Shapeways the best place to go to? Um, I really want a blue one just to match my blue game gear, and you know why not? Uh, but does anybody have any access to this, or are there even places like in big cities, like in New York, where you could just email them their files and then you know go pick them up or something when they're done? But I would certainly like to know a little bit more about this, and I have a feeling a lot of the people watching, especially who don't own 3D printers, would kind of be interested in this as well. But um, once again, massive and gigantic thank you to the Real Phoenix to donating those 3D files to the retro gaming community. Because once again, you know, I'm sure none of us will miss those $1 bargain bin Game Gear games today. But by having a brand new 3D print of those cartridges, um, now we could use those for our own stuff and not have to worry about eventually running out of them. So thank you again, and I'd love to hear what everybody has to say about the 3D print stuff. Someone just accidentally set the world record for the fastest 300,000 points in Tetris, and I just thought it was kind of a neat thing I wanted to quickly share, but he was going for a different record and then realized he had gotten that one, so if anybody wants to check it out, he gets all uh, excited and freaks out just around the three-minute mark, but just kind of a silly, lighthearted thing I wanted to share with everybody. Team Executor just announced what they're calling a future-proof jailbreak for the Nintendo Switch, Now, Team Executor's been around forever and had some of the best original Xbox mods, and I don't really know if this is a software solution or a hardware solution, but if it does end up being hardware or something that you have to solder in, I would love for them to build a switch into it, a switch into the switch, so that uh, if you wanted to, you could power it off and then boot it in official firmware mode, or power it back off and boot it in custom firmware mode, so that way, um, you know, one doesn't interfere with the other. But, to be honest, I'm just a fan of homebrew in general, so any way they get it working, sign me up, I'd definitely like to give it a try. The team at iFix Retro is now one of the first people to install Bordy's N64 RGB board, which is similar to Tim's and uses his own custom firmware for it that allows for de-blur and stuff like that. And while I haven't had a chance to check this one out in person, I'm really glad that this is starting to move along, because while I'm still a massive fan of Tim Worthington and all his stuff, 
I do love how Bordy's approaching all of this from the open source side of things. So depending on your needs, it might be easier to make your own and customize it or just buy Tim's and I personally prefer Bordy's firmware on it. But either way, we all have options now and uh, I'm glad that these guys were able to get it installed and hopefully I'll get down there very soon to check it out myself. Smoke Monster just sent me over something interesting. It's a bounty for the CPS 1.5 arcade boards. Now, I'm not too sure uh, I know what I'm talking about, so I'm just going to read his email, and hopefully everybody who's into the arcade stuff will know what I'm talking about. But basically, it's a call for somebody to complete the process of getting the rare and expensive and very prone to breaking Capcom CPS 1.5 games, such as The Punisher, to boot on a CPS 2 board and Darksoft's multis, which would make it better for everybody who has those. Um, I guess they've already raised a couple of thousand dollars plus a Punisher PCB for anybody who could pull it off. And somebody had Punisher booting on a CPS 2, but it had no sound and glitches, so it looks like it's very possible. Um, I love all of that. I love start to finish. Uh, I love the idea of a bounty because it gives, I think there's a lot more people out there actually with the skill to do things like this, but I don't mean this to come out the wrong way at all. I imagine many of us with families and hobbies and, you know, and day jobs of their own and all that stuff, do we really want to sit there and put 40, 50, 60 hours into something that we're essentially going to be just kind of giving away for free? Most of us actually do want to do that, but don't really have the ability to. Life kind of kicks in. But for those of us who'd like to take side projects and stuff like that, uh, or, you know, or side jobs or whatever else, if you have the ability to do this and you get to help out the community and you get to make a couple of bucks while doing it all at the same time, everybody wins. So uh, I do like things like this. And, uh, you know, obviously I'm still going to continue to donate as much as I can for free, but uh, I do love the idea of a bounty. I also very much uh, appreciate people who are taking things like easy-to-break boards, things that are rare and expensive, and trying to preserve them in a way where they could kind of just live on forever. So stuff like this uh, just wins me over from every aspect. Maybe I'm wrong on any of that. Post down below if uh, anybody disagrees, but very cool for, uh, for the people that are doing this, and hopefully somebody will jump on soon and come up with a solution. An interview with the producer of Mega Man 11 was just posted, and he actually talks about his work on Mega Man 7 for the Super Nintendo, and kind of gives his insight onto that game, and one of the neat little tidbits was that the whole thing was developed in three months. So that's kind of an amazing feat in its own, but if anybody was interested in that, definitely check out the link to the full interview below. The Terra Onion team has just uploaded their own footage of the Super SD System 3 shells, showing how they fit on both Turbo Graphics and PC Engines uh, that showed off a little bit more of the uh, production version of the board itself, as well as the RGB port and kind of, uh, I think, the micro SD port in the side. So I'm getting really excited to try one of these things out. Um, I have a Turbo Graphics sitting at the office right now, kind of waiting for it. And uh, I just, I hope um, it really lives up to everything we want it to be. Once again, total speculation, but based on the Neo SD, I'm assuming that the ROM cart side of it's probably going to be perfect. Um, the optical drive emulation's a little trickier, but those guys seem to have that stuff down. Um, I still can't wait to try it for myself, and especially because, uh, you know, I'm that guy. I have to check out the RGB output and see if it lives up to some of the internal mods. But either way, if you are interested in seeing what it looks like, definitely check out a link to the video. Marcus just released the design files for his SNES Dejitter board, which is the board that's attempting to 
change the SNES's sync output to make it more compatible with different displays and processors. So anybody who wants to try that out and make their own board could just download the files and do it themselves. And also, Dan, Citrus 3000 PSI, has already made a SNES RGB board with this de-jitter built right into it. So it looks like a THS7374 based board with proper attenuation and the de-jitter circuit. So something like this is going to be a game changer if it works the way we all hope, because even with the Super NT coming out, which obviously is going to be compatible with pretty much everything, I say pretty much because you never know, but um, even with that coming out, I still want to capture footage, and a lot of us who own an OSSC still want to play Super Nintendo through different devices that it might not be compatible with now. And I know personally, I have a capture card that I love to use that's not compatible at all with SNES through the OSSC, even in 2X mode. So I'm really interested in installing Dan's board into that one to hopefully have it take care of everything all with one shot. Uh, and I will, of course, update as soon as I get it in. Or uh, if Dan, I'm sure, is going to beat me to it and install his own board. But if Dan posts footage of that, I will have that up in the roundup as soon as he does it. So awesome work to everybody. Um, thank you, both of you guys, so much for sharing all this stuff with everybody. And hopefully it'll just all make all of our Super Nintendos more compatible. And speaking of Dan, he just showed pictures of his GC Max, which is his take on the dual outputting GC video solution. And this thing looks very cool. Um, it uses a mini HDMI cable and then a custom analog connector, which could output either RGB component video or even VGA if you wire up the cable correctly. And it also has a 3.5 millimeter jack for digital audio. So this device is uh, just, it's the same size pretty much as the other adapter that he made, the GC plug, but has dual output, which I think is very cool. I don't think you'd be able to fit two connectors in at the same time to get dual HDMI and RGB. Um, maybe if you made a custom cable or something, you'd be able to pull that off. But I think there's a physical space different um, uh, problem, so you wouldn't actually be able to fit the connectors next to each other. So this isn't really designed for Twitch streamers who want dual output. This is really more for people who want either or. Um, also, the audio solution is very cool, but you could, of course, just pull left and right audio from the, the main uh, analog output port. And uh, he has actually sent me the links to the files for the analog cable itself and the, uh, the port and jack that it uses, as well as a custom SCART board that he made. So if you wanted to get one of these, you could just make your own cable for it. Um, and he's going to be uploading the design files as well as the pinouts soon. I'm not sure if they'll be up by the time this video airs, but definitely check back. Um, and if it's more than a week's delay, I'll just update everybody next week and have new links. But this thing is amazing as far as do-it-yourself solution goes. And a massive and huge thank you to Dan for uploading all of his work for free. Um, pretty much everything he does, he sends as open source. So very, very cool. And anybody who's into do-it-yourself projects, um, this one's a bit challenging, but it, uh, it's a very cool thing to have. So I'll keep everybody updated on its progress. And speaking of GC Video, Badass Consoles just posted two updates on Twitter in regards to the GC Video X project. The first is that the output connectors have arrived, so he's able to make some beta boards and send them out to testers for their final seal of approval. If everything goes well and no major bugs are found, that means he could start mass production of these things right away, which is uh, awesome because a lot of us have been waiting for these for quite a long time. 
Next is that he's shown a prototype of his outtake on the dual output version, which is quite different than Dan's. This one actually uses a wide connector that connects to both the digital and analog ports of the GameCube at the same time. Also, it has a full-size HDMI port and a Wii analog output port, which means that if you want RGB or component video, all you have to do is just buy a cheap Wii cable and plug it in. The analog audio is passed through right from the port, and then of course digital audio is through the HDMI jack. So overall, this is a very cool thing, um, and it does definitely support dual outputting at the same time because the connectors are far enough apart. So it seems like there really is going to be a solution for everybody, whether you want a do-it-yourself solution that's kind of unique and different, or whether you just want an off-the-shelf solution. Um, no word on price or availability for the dual design, but I imagine it wouldn't be too far after his single uh, outputting HDMI version is released, because I believe he has everything set up to just go right from there. So I'll keep everybody updated when there's any final word on uh, release dates or anything like that. And if I get one to test, hopefully I'll be able to head down to some of the Brooklyn streamers and have them put it through its paces so that we could really have uh, test it for, with people that do fighting tournaments and would really notice any little quirk or difference with these things. But great news for GameCube fans all around. NVIDIA just announced a 65-inch 4K gaming monitor. This has G-Sync technology built in, so supposedly you don't get any screen tearing, which is something that I would love to test on classic consoles. I've actually never tested a newer monitor with G-Sync built in, so I'm not really sure if that would solve the issue of like Game Boy, Game Boy Color frame rates not matching, or even the SNES D-Jitter stuff that we were talking about before, uh, but certainly worth looking into. Also, it has a built-in NVIDIA Shield, so it should have gaming capabilities right in it, uh, and they claim that it's low latency. Now, I really don't know what that means because I would call my OLED TV low latency even though it has two frames of lag because I've seen tons of TVs with four or five frames even in game mode. But maybe because this is designed as a gaming monitor, low latency would mean sub one frame. Um, very interested to see how this pans out. There's no pricing. Um, they claim it's going to be released this summer. But I do want to give everybody a disclaimer. This is the first of the 2018 CES stuff that's popped up that uh, I felt would be relevant to this podcast. And I've spent many years at CES, and uh, you have to curb your expectations with these things. I can't tell you how many times I've been at one of these trade shows and seen this amazing new product, and then you come back a year later, and not only have they missed their ship date, what they're showing is that same prototype that they had from the year before, but now it's all beat to shit because it's been dragged back and forth to 50 different trade shows. Uh, so curb your expectations. Hopefully this will be an affordable 4K gaming TV. If it is, I think a lot of us would be absolutely thrilled, especially if it was compatible with all retro consoles in the OSSC. Um, what if it has its own cool upscaler built in? Who knows? But uh, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing more information about this, and I really hope this isn't the only large gaming display that's going to be talked about this year because I feel like that's one thing that's definitely missing in even modern gaming is just a large low latency monitor. SNES Central just tweeted something kind of interesting. There's a book going up for sale in Japan about not-for-resale SNES games. So the, all of the pages are in Japanese, uh, so I'm not really sure what this is about, but sounds intriguing. So if any listeners that speak Japanese, 
looking at you, Jimmy Hoppe. Um, maybe you could just kind of give a basic synopsis of what it is and post down below, because I'm really interested in what that could mean. But uh, if anybody knows how to speak Japanese, thank you in advance. HD Retrovision just posted an update about their cables. Their SNES and Genesis cables are both in currently being shipped to the U.S., as well as their component cables. That's just the basic pass-through male-to-male or male-to-female extension cables, I guess you'd call them. So all of those are en route and should be available probably within a month or two, depending on shipping. Of course, you know, barring anything crazy. Um, so those will be available right away, as well as their Neo Geo adapters, which are, I think, still in stock. Next, their PS1 adapters are currently being manufactured, as well as the Saturn adapters. So if you were looking for either one of those, um, you definitely want to buy the Genesis cable right away, and then pick up those two adapters once they were released, I'd guess probably a month or two afterwards. Um, and finally, their PS2 and PS3 component video cables are just going through one minor revision, and then they'll be put through manufacturing. So I guess add another few more months on to that but i'm actually really excited for those because apparently the component video cables that i've been using for playstation were crappy and they looked good they looked like high quality shielded cables but um they definitely were not after i finally uh one the red output died in it and then when i cut it open it realized it was mostly just fluff inside and not actual cables so uh, I'm really looking forward to getting a, a high-quality set of component cables so I can go back and redo my component versus RGB versus 480p sync on green testing because um, I really think it's a, uh, it seems now, after all the testing people have done and after that last My Life in Gaming video, that those of us who thought that RGB quality was better than component on PS2 might have just been using really crappy component cables. So I hope that's the case, because a lot of people using component would just make everything easier, depending on your setup. So uh, maybe all you need is just a good set of HD Retrovision PS2 and PS3 cables. I finally finished Castlevania's Symphony of the Night, and I just wanted to give my quick final thoughts on it, just to follow up from the podcast I did with Steve and Zach a few weeks ago, or two weeks ago. But overall, I loved it. Um, I thought it was really awesome that I got to go back and play such a classic game that's so well known for the first time. So it was really cool to have that perspective of all the games, all especially all of the Metroidvania games I've played and never actually played one of the games that helped coin the phrase. And overall, I really liked it. I think the majority of things I didn't like about it were all of the role-playing side of things, because I'm much more of an adventure game than a role-playing game type of guy, so having, the, having to figure out the combinations of weapons and powering up and stuff like that wasn't really my thing, but it wasn't. I certainly didn't dislike it. The only real thing, a negative thing I would say about it is it definitely felt to me like the Upside Down Castle was an afterthought. And in comparison, it felt like the Dark World and A Link to the Past was something that was part, always part of the plan. Um, the way it, it just, you could do something in the Dark World that affected the Light World. It, I just thought it was a really brilliant way of going about it. And even as a kid, I remember, you know, when I first got to the Dark World, I was like, ah! Oh, I thought I'd almost beaten it. What the hell? There's a whole other game here. But very quickly was just enthralled in the gameplay, and I just really enjoyed it. Whereas in Symphony of the Night, it it was just like okay, everything's upside down and a little bit harder. Like I, I just I felt like I would have walked away with a much more positive uh, 
memory of it if it just ended right away. But, you know, in the in the right-side-up castle. I'm sure everybody disagrees with me in that, and it's all, all just opinions. So just wanted to share my thoughts on it. Um, I do want to revisit at least one more game in the Castlevania series, because I just never got into it as much as I tried. I didn't play them as a kid, though, and I think that it has a lot to do with it. Because when those games on the NES were brand new, even, I guess, the best example for me would be Metroid. I loved it. I thought it was amazing and different, and I loved the open world and everything. And then as soon as Metroid 2 on happened, uh, I just didn't enjoy the first one anymore because I loved the game mechanics so much more of the newer ones. And even when Zero Mission came out, or even that really cool fan hack of Super Metroid that's pretty much like Zero Mission... um, I would much rather go back and play that. But, you know, you can't have the new without the old, and a, a lot of people get pissed when I said that on the podcast and were offended about their, their favorite Metroid NES game, but that's just my opinion. So, based on that, I feel like it probably wasn't the best thing for me to do to go back and try to play the NES Castlevania. I should probably have tried to play the Super NES version. So, I'm going to go back and play Super Castlevania for It'll probably be a little while, um, unless you guys suggest something different. So, what do you think? If uh, I think the next Castlevania games that are, are like Symphony of the Night are the Game Boy Advance ones and then the DS ones, and I will get to all those eventually, and they seem like really fun games to play, but if I wanted to go back and just try one more of the linear-style Castlevania games, what do you think? Should Super Castlevania 4 be it? I did try to play Rondo of Blood, and I got bored with it within an hour or two. Maybe I was just in a bad mood or something, I don't really know. But um, is that overall the one that you guys would suggest? Uh, but, you know, I don't know. It's probably, maybe this shouldn't be part of the weekly roundup, but I just wanted to follow up on the podcast we did. And I just felt like such an important game, you know, it's uh, the phrase was coined because of this. Uh, I just felt that it needed a little bit more discussion. And uh, if you're bored, I'm sorry, just let me know down in the let me know down in the comments, and I'll never talk like this in the weekly stuff again. I'll keep it separate. But anyway, what's your thoughts? Super Castlevania uh, four should that be my last try for just the basic original Castlevanias, or should I just go straight to the Game Boy Advance and DS ones? Now on to the Q and A's. Um, there's actually a lot this week, and I want to get through them pretty quickly, but before I do, I just want to give a huge shout-out to everybody who's been remodding their consoles. I've seen a lot of people on social media and on the forums show before and after pictures of mods that they'd either done previously or they'd bought from people that maybe didn't know what they were doing, and it's just really cool to see people taking the time to make sure their, their mod is done right. Almost every one of them have said they've definitely noticed a picture quality difference. Uh, and, you know, in some of these, you might even extend the life of your console, reduce the amount of potential errors. Overall, you can't really go wrong. So big shout out to everybody that's been doing that. Um, you know, it's, it's really good to see. So uh, hope you're enjoying your now better modded console. Last week, I asked about posting off-topic videos under Retro RGB. And I got a lot of really great responses, and uh, I really took all the feedback to heart. I'm still just trying to figure everything out at the moment. But one suggestion I thought was awesome, and in hindsight, I should have been doing it from day one. John DeLoa said, um, have a different title system for each type of video. So I'm not sure if he just meant the title, but I was also thinking the thumbnail. 
So if anybody out there is a good Photoshop artist, because I am terrible, I mean, you guys see my Photoshop hacks, um, I would really love to have almost a template, I guess, where I could just take a PNG or a bitmap and every week just add, you know, have one weekly roundup bitmap and then just add the date and time or anything and one interview bitmap and add the person or maybe their logo or something like that. And I would even go back and, and update every single video, to be honest with you, just because being able to scroll through a video and just by looking at the thumbnail know exactly what to expect, I think that'd be really great. So um, if anybody's a Photoshop artist and uh, wants to talk to me about maybe making something like that, please let me know because I think that would actually be a really big help, even if everything stayed the exact same as it is now. So thank you guys, all of you for the suggestions and you John as well for that. Brolic Pixel asked about a way to hook up RF only consoles to the FrameMeister and that's honestly something I'd never really considered before. Um, I think the easiest way to do it might be to pick up three different RF adapters because he had mentioned the 2600 Intellivision and ColecoVision. If you pick up three like Nest style RF adapters, you could actually plug each into each other. So one into the bottom of the other into the bottom and then that into something that uh, breaks out RF into composite video and audio. Uh, you'd mentioned a VCR, but I understand that those are big and bulky and you might not want to deal with that. So maybe just um, instead get a basic RF demodulator for that. And I think that would be the cheapest and easiest way overall, uh, especially if you could find just generic RF modulators and then, uh, you know, for each console and then one, um, you know, one of the demodulators. Uh, to be honest, though, I kind of have a strong opinion on this one. Um, if you were doing this it, with the, the plan of another end goal, absolutely go for it. You're only going to drop like 40 bucks tops and all that stuff. So, um, you know, definitely do it to hold you over. But if your main concern, as you said, was that uh, you don't want to mod these consoles because uh, you, you want to leave them completely stock, a good option might be looking into an analog NT Mini. Because at the moment, they do a great job with 2600 and ColecoVision, and Intellivision support is coming, according to Kevtris. And he does still plan on releasing those controller and cartridge adapters, and the controller adapters are definitely the most important, in my opinion. So you could really get a pretty amazing solution um, for what it might actually be cheaper than modding all three originals. Uh, you know, if you take into account shipping and all that stuff, if you have to pay somebody else to do it. But you would get a great solution that would be a better, a much better experience than RF through the FrameMeister. The other thing I want to mention, though, is as long as you don't cut the plastic of the cases, each one of these mods uh, is a non-invasive mod that you don't really need to cut anything. So um, I, I've definitely done Intellivision and ColecoVision where you could just solder right to it and maybe just run the cable out one of the vent holes or uh, the RF hole is big enough in the Coleco where you could run the cable through it um, and not even take out the RF modulator in the Coleco. I think it might be the same, depending on, as long as it's the bigger 2600 and not the junior, it would be the same for those. So that, you might actually be able to do all of those RGB mods on those and have it 100% reversible should you ever need to go back. So uh, while the the three RF modulators to one demodulator to a FrameMeister would work, would probably work, um, I would really consider those other solutions because they're probably going to be better experiences overall. Next, that guy talked about putting a Laserdisc player through a DVD recorder into the OSSC. Um, I'm not really sure why you'd want to do that, uh, but 
I'll address two different ways because that ties into something that I was just working on. First of all, if you're just looking to utilize things like the 3D filter, comb filters that were used in the, the DVD players and then digitize it out through the OSSC, so you'd keep it 480i, but now it's HDMI, I think a much better way to do that would be to use something like a DVD-O box and just do composite video right into that and output HDMI. I think they do a much better job with filtering than any uh, laser or than any DVD recorder would do. And uh, the upscaling is going to be of the utmost quality. Um, the OSSC is designed very specifically for games. And I just recently actually did an upscaling TV experiment through the OSSC to see what would happen. And the results kind of surprised me. So uh, three weeks ago, I had the interview with Cousin Scott about how we did the test of the Knight Rider TV movie on a flat screen TV, on different CRTs. And really, we went into a lot of detail about how it was such a noisy 480i image uh, that by putting it through a high-end CRT with both the horizontal scan lines and the vertical lines in there, it really cut up the image enough where it was still really sharp, but you didn't notice as much of the noise. So I put that same TV show, which I think is going to be my default go-to now for testing because it's, I know it well, it's very noisy, and I, I have it in different formats. But I put that into a PlayStation 3 via component video input into an OSSC. Um, first of all, the upscaling came out terrible for all of the right reasons. Integer scaling, it just takes everything, cuts it into blocks, and stretches it. So uh, people would literally have like squares on the side of their face, um, which for video games is exactly the look that most retro gamers would go for because you just want to take that same image and just match the higher resolution. Whereas for actual movies and video, there's a lot more to it, which is why something like a DVD-O scaler would do such a good job with something like that. However, one thing that really did surprise me, uh, 480i with scan lines looked like garbage, but 480p through the OSSC, um, so it's not upscaling at all, it's just taking the um, 480p signal from the PS3 into the OSSC, digitizing it and adding light scan lines looked great. I actually like very sharp dark scan lines when playing video games, and that's actually how I played Symphony of the Night. I think the scan lines were at like 80%, and I thought it look, looked really close to a BVM. But having that made-for-TV movie, which is a, a 4x3, 480i, terrible quality video, being digitized with light scan lines on it, it helped cut the image um, not nearly as good as actually watching it through the 32-inch BVM, but I actually preferred it. So that's certainly something to consider if you were looking to change the way the signal looked to maybe make it look more, uh, more retro. Of course, the best possible way would be to get a really high-end CRT and watch it through that, but I'm assuming that's not an option since you're talking about all this. So the short answer to your question is, if you're really just looking for a great way to upscale a laser disc player, just use a DVD-O box. Um, if you want to mess around with scan lines, uh, maybe just try going into an OSSC. So you'd have to use, I guess with a LaserDisc player, you would have to use like a composite to RGB converter, which some of the DVDOs might even be able to do. Um, you actually might even be able to go LaserDisc composite into a DVDO to get their good comb filtering, um, uh, deinterlacing, and then output component video, and then that into an OSSC to add scan lines. 
so that's a, a pretty convoluted way to do all these things. But if watching older content on newer screens is important to you, these are all the steps that you have to go through. And it's a pain, but I think it's worth it. Next, QuickRat asked about using one controller on multiple different consoles. He actually had a bunch of different scenarios to talk about, but basically that's something that's kind of common. Um, I know a few people that are uh, fighting game professionals that want to use the same controller regardless if they're using the PlayStation 2 or some kind of consoleized arcade setup or anything else. And there are actually controllers that do this right now, but I believe you have to custom make all of them. So I believe Ben from iFix Retro has actually taken a bunch of different controllers and uh, modded them for this. And any, anywhere from getting like a Mayflash arcade stick, which are, I think the ones he used are decent quality, and then putting this board in and getting the connectors, to actually building an, a competition-grade arcade stick. Um, some of the, the fighting game guys use controllers that they spent a lot on because it has all competition-level components. So um, if you're interested in that, definitely reach out to iFix Retro on Twitter and see if that's something they could do for you. But uh, that already exists, and it's, it's not uncommon that people would prefer that. Uh, I think I even know the opposite. I think I know somebody that has a PS2 adapter because he's so used to his PS2 controller, that's what he wants to use on everything, which I, I totally get. It's much like using the same guitar because your hands are already used to it. So it was a good question, um, and uh, definitely reach out to iFix Retro and see if they could hook you up with what you need. Just remember, you get what you pay for, so uh, the better the controller, the more expensive it's going to be. Kevin E. asked where to find a high-quality component video cable, so just a basic RCA on each side. Um, back when component video was the standard, I would never suggest this, but maybe try to find some cheap monster cables now. I remember going into Best Buy and seeing $100 for a 6-foot monster component cable and just thinking, what moron would buy that? But uh, now you can get them for like 20 bucks and they're good quality, maybe a little bit more. And HD Retrovision are releasing theirs that are based off of the same cable technology that's on the rest of them. So um, it's a high quality shielded cable where you're not going to get buzz or interference. So either one of those would be a good, uh, a good suggestion. But anybody else, if anybody knows down below what a good brand to buy is, maybe post and share because I'd bought a few cables over the years that were thick and heavy, and uh, I had to end up cutting him for whatever reason to make custom stuff. And it was like all foam with a t couple of tiny little connectors in it and no shielding. So uh, you definitely, just because it's big and heavy doesn't necessarily mean it's a really good cable. Uh, and I'm pretty sure Monster Cable are, are almost always going to be good enough. So hope that's a good answer. Michael's workshop posted an interesting perspective in regards to what we talked about last week about uh, people's products getting stolen. Now, he seemed to agree 100% that everything I spoke about last week was theft and shady and not cool, but he brought up something that I think is worth discussion, or, or maybe not, you guys let me know, but um, maybe this is better done on the next Retro Roundtable, but I'll just give a very short opinion. Um, he said, what about the perspective of the Chinese way called Shanzai, where everybody benefits from a better product if you steal it and can improve it? Um, and he wasn't saying that's, that's what he believes. He was just asking, you know, what about that perspective of things? 
And to be honest, um, I've had products stolen. You know, I, I walked into CES one year and saw the thing that I invented sitting on a stand. And, it, you know, it wasn't anything that would have made me a millionaire. You know, it was something that would have been out of date uh, six months after the product launched. So I'm not worried about that. But it does suck to have something you worked hard on stolen from an emotional point of view. From a financial point of view, if you're a small company or a hobby shop and your thing gets stolen, um, and, and the next person that stole it's better at marketing it than you, then you're going to lose a lot of money. And not only are you going to not be able to sell that, you might lose your interest in making the next product. So at the very least, in the confines of retro gaming, there's almost no scenario where I think reverse engineering or stealing blatantly like that would be of benefit to anybody. Um, but I would love to talk about this further, unless you guys think it's, I'm beating a dead horse. Because it is a good thing to debate, because there are products that only exist because somebody reverse engineered something else and figured out something about it. So uh, it's certainly something worth talking about, but uh, just from the standpoints of retro gaming and the things I talk about in this podcast, I can't imagine a scenario of, of somebody reverse engineering somebody else's product and selling it that I would condone. But hey, maybe we'll all talk about it on the podcast and uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll see how they feel, because I certainly know... Zach and Renee, and uh, I think, yeah, even the HD Retrovision guys have all had copycat versions of their products sold. Lucky for them, at least uh, for Renee and HD Retrovision, the ones that were put up for sale were terrible and most people noticed right away. But, um, you know, I'd still like to hear everybody's opinion on this. So maybe post down below and let me know if you want to hear about that in the next roundtable. Neil Jacob Nasia asked if I could have more topics about recording gameplay footage. Absolutely. Uh, it's something that I have a lot of fun doing, and I have a lot of friends that uh, do this professionally that have amazing setups. So I would really love at some point to cover the whole spectrum from really great cost-effective ways to do it for people that just do it for fun versus the best professional methods to do it. Um, and I, can, I think I'm going to have a lot of fun doing all of it. I have no idea when I can get to that, though. Things are still a little crazy. But um, the short, short version uh, is I would take whatever console into an upscaler into the computer. I wouldn't go to a DVD recorder or something like that, especially because it might interpret the signal wrong. Um, and the one good thing is if you could split the signal any possible way, so whether it's console to BVM or PVM and then use those outputs into a scaler or through a GSCART switch with the dual outputs, if you could split that analog signal and have one go to a CRT and the other one go out to a scaler, I think that's the best way to do it because it doesn't matter how much lag is in that scaler because that's only being captured. Uh, so if you're doing it for things like... Um, making videos or Twitch streaming or stuff like that, I would even recommend starting out with that really crappy, you know, SCART to HDMI box because there's really not much wrong with it for streaming. It's going to look all right and that, you know, it's, it's great to start out on. It's pretty cheap. And at that, you could actually just make BNC to SCART cables so you can just go right console PVM out to that. Um, the only thing would be is if you're trying to do any kind of comparison testing or if you're trying to also game on a flat screen, uh, the OSSC might be the only way to go because it doesn't add any lag and uh, it preserves the image quality. So I, I'm doing all of my, I've done all of my comparison tests both direct into a capture card and through the OSSC and so far I haven't seen something on one and not the other. It seems to be an exact copy of the image just 
bigger. So uh, that's just my two cents on it. But I will eventually get to all that stuff because I think it's a lot of fun to work on. And lastly, Kailani pointed me to a Twitter account of a game developer, I believe, that was talking about the the whole delay of 64 gigabyte Switch carts. I spoke about it last week and said that that's going to mean that people are going to have to do more downloads of bigger games. But the developer actually said that a lot of developers aren't even using 32 gig carts because they're cost prohibitive. Um, and it makes sense to delay the 64 gig carts until they become much cheaper. Uh, and I guess he said, taking ballpark figures, a 64-bit game might retail for 70 or 80 just because of the cost of the cart. So I don't know if this is true or not. I'm just going to take their word for it because, you know, everything you read on Twitter is definitely going to be true. Uh, but all kidding aside, that totally makes sense, and it's not something I considered when talking about it last week. So it was cool to get a different opinion on it. But, um, yeah, I mean, either way, it's a little annoying that you have to download or so much of a game, a larger game, in order to be able to play it. But I guess if it keeps the cost down that much, I'd rather spend 50 bucks on one really big micro SD card and not have to worry about adding that much more cost to all the other games I play. Before I go, I just got to mention the interview I did with Bordy. It was so much fun being able to meet Peter after all these years of working with him and emailing back and forth. And he's a super nice guy, and he's done a bunch of really great projects and shared them all. So everything he's done is open source, and I think that's amazing that he just gives everything back to the community like that. Um, i just a uh, big fan of his work, and it was great talking to him. So if you're even remotely interested in any of that, please give it a listen. Uh, it's on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, and of course YouTube. So uh, I know some people prefer to, to listen to the longer form stuff as opposed to watch on YouTube, but I have it out there on everything for whoever wants it. Um, also, I believe next week we're going to be doing a retro roundtable. I never really know. It could be tomorrow for all I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just hard to get everybody on the same page together because we all have crazy schedules and stuff like that. But um, definitely subscribe and click on the little bell. And the only thing you'll ever see on the retro roundtable's YouTube channel is those podcasts. So don't worry about clicking the little bell and having a, a bunch of annoying notifications. You'll only get notified when we're going live. Um, but other than that, I mean, I guess that's pretty much it for this week. As always, thank you so much to all my Patreons. None of these videos would happen if you guys weren't around, so I'm always genuinely indebted to all you guys. Uh, and hopefully I'll do better and find cooler ways to do the giveaways and stuff like that. Um, and as always, any comments or criticism, please post down below, and I'll see you guys next week.